Okay. Hi, everybody. Really nice to see you all. Thanks for coming from near. And where's our London guys? Where's Aton? And from afar. <laughs> nice to see you. Um, okay, so I thought I would do something which I've been working on lately um, with you guys, um, in as much as. Um, in as much as Hashanah Rabbah is traditionally seen as the end of the Yimei Hadin, um, I suppose it's, a, it's an appropriate topic. Um, and uh, I guess the, what I want to talk about, the Gadol, um, is um, the fact that this cycle of Yimei Hadin, which starts with Rosh Hashanah, continues to Yom Kippur, and culminates in a way tonight with Hashanah Rabbah, is, um, you know, speaking myself going through yeshiva, it's never the funnest of times in yeshiva, or at least when you're focused on, you know, judgment, stuff like that. Just showing up in court for parking tickets bad enough, but having, you know, your life on trial with God is a little heavy. And if you think about the emotions that it evokes in us, the you know, top of the list is really guilt. Guilt is really no fun. Nobody likes it very much. And um, the question is, how do you sort of gear yourself up for a season of din, of all things? Um, and I guess I want to talk tonight about um, <coughs> sort of um, an, an approach to guilt which emerges in Chazal and with uh, some biblical text, which was very revelatory to me and fascinating and sort of gave me a different way of thinking about guilt generally, which uh, was very freeing. So I want to share it with you and kind of share the journey of how I got there. The journey begins with a different holiday, um, not Sukkot at all, but actually Pesach. Um, and I want to show you a mind-blowing Chazal in Masech Pesachim, at the beginning of Pesachim, that <coughs> really everything we're going to do tonight is just an analysis of this one Chazal and trying to figure out where the rabbis got what, what they were saying from. It's really pretty mind-blowing. Let me share it with you. Um, I actually printed it out, but that one page is missing, so I'm going to read off my phone. Um, it is the Gemara's derivation for the source for something that is said in the first mission of Pesachim. First mission of Pesachim is concerned with Bidikas Chametz. It says that Orla Avrasar Botkinas Chametz Oraner, that on the eve of the 14th day of Nisan, we are to. Um, I'm just going to record this so we, in case we say anything notable, we'll know what it was. Um, <coughs> So the Mishnah begins, Orla Abrasar, on the eve of the 14th day of Nisan, Botkinus Achamas Laorhamer. We search for Chamez by the light of the candle. Um, and the Gemara goes further and says, You only have to search the places for Chamez that, um, that uh, you could possibly put Chamez in. The Lama Amru, Sheshuras Bamertaf. Why did, why did folks say that you really should search the first two rows of your wine cellar? 
This makom shemachnisim belchametz. It's a place you put chametz in. This is the Mishnah. What I want to focus with you is on the Gemara, which is neatly summarized by the Rav, the Bartanura. And the Gemara is concerned with how we know this to be true. How do we know that the search for chametz needs to be conducted by candlelight? <clears throat> the Gemara creates a derivation. Now, this is the kind of derivation, and I, I, I kind of want to put this out to you as an example. You do a lot of learning Gemara, and a lot of times, stuff that Chazal say, like this, you know, you can just sort of learn it and read through it and translate the words and move on. But if you really start to think, think about it much, it starts to be really head-scratching and very, very strange. When you come across stuff like that, you sort of have a choice. You can either ignore the strangeness and say, Viter, let's move on, there's more to learn. Or you can stop and say, that was really strange. I bet there's something going on there. And try to figure out like, what's actually going on. Which would involve things like actually looking up the psukim and you know, going back into the text that the Gemara is talking about. And I think taking a larger picture, larger stock of what's happening in the psukim. Often Chazal are not just referring to the one or two psukim that they're talking to. They're really talking about a larger <coughs> picture. And then if you come back and after studying the sources, looking at what they're saying, somehow it looks different. Anyway, let me share with you what they say. What they say seems very, very peculiar. Um, any of you guys ever play Mousetrap with your kids? Anybody play Mousetrap? Okay, so Mousetrap is like this Rube Goldberg game, right? You're creating this crazy machine. So you drop the ball over there, you know, and then eventually it's all going to come together. So it's going to happen, right? The derivation that Chazal are going to come up with for the idea that you should search for chametz by candlelight on the night of the 14th, why it has to be candlelight, is like playing mousetrap. That's what it's like, okay? So let me just share you what, what they say. I kid you not, here's what they say. We're going to try to figure out what they're talking about. So the Rav says, The Gemara learns out, The Bidikas chametz has to do with all your candles from the following passage. Most of your days, it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 19, that you shall not have chametz or sourdough found in your household. Fine. Fair enough. So the Gemara is concerned, or notes the fact that it says, passive form of the word matzah, sort of an unusual form of the verb. And the Gemara is like, thinks about that and says, okay, where else does it say you must say, other than so'orlo you must say Probably the Gemara is thinking, when's the last time it said you must say in the Torah? Anyone know when the last time it said you must say in the Torah? Free Coke, the correct answer. Last time it said you must say in the Torah, before Shmos days. Five seconds, four, three, two, one. And the answer is, at the end of Sefer Bracious, towards the end of Sefer Bracious, in the story, wouldn't you know it, of Yosef. The very end of the Yosef story, remember the part where Yosef frames Binyamin with the silver goblet? You all remember that part? And then there's this search, right? They, they take off their sacks and they search through the sacks. Well, it turns out that when they find the silver goblet in Binyamin's sack, the language of the text in Bracious Memdalit, Pasuk Yudbeis, is 
Vayimatzei ha-gavia. Right? The gavia is found. Same word, yimatzei. So the Gemara says, so it says, so or lo yimatzei that leaven should not be found in your household. And it also says that vayimatzei ha-gavia, that the silver goblet was found in Binyamin Sat. The Gemara goes further and says, now let's look at that comparison a little bit. If you look at that story of the searching of Binyamin Sack, right, when they found Bayimatse Hagavia, they didn't just find the Gavia, they had to search for it first. There was a whole search that was launched. So just like the Metsia that's written with respect to the silver goblet required searching, there was searching that was done for it. Shenemar, as it says in the Pasuk, that they began searching through the oldest brother's sacks, and they finished searching through the younger brother's sacks. So there was clearly a search that was launched. So therefore, we can infer that the next time it says, right, as in, with leaven, that that has to be done through a search as well. Hence the idea that there needs to be a search for chametz. You can't just not have se'or in your house. You have to search for chametz and not find it. Because it has to be just like the search with the brothers. <clears throat> now, once we know that you have to search for chametz this way, because it says uh, with the story of the goblet, and we infer, therefore, there has to be a search with chametz. Once you know there has to be a chipos-style search, the Gemara says, speaking of chipos, <coughs> chipos havi bener. Whenever you search for something, that's always with a candle. How do you know that chipos searching is always with a candle? Ah, for that we rely on a verse in Mishlei. The verse in Mishlei, Parak Kaf, Pasach Chav Zayin, says, Ner Hashem, Nishmat Adam, Chofes Kol Chadre Batam. Ner Hashem, Nishmat Adam, Chofes Kol Chadre Batam. We'll translate that verse in a moment, but you can, even without translating, you can see how the verse talks about Chofes, talks about searching, and associates that with a Ner. Ner Hashem, Nishmat Adam, Chofes Kol Chadre Batam. Ergo, it's obvious that you have to search for Chamites by the night of the 14th by candlelight, right? I'm surprised you all didn't figure this out yourselves, right? It's just clear as day, right? right this is a very strange derivation. Tell me what it... But I want to see if we can sort of narrow it down. Like, you would have to, like, actually pick it apart. What would you say is so strange about this derivation? What do you say? No, you guys all think it's normal, right? What, what, what's three odd about totally it? Three totally unconnected pesukim. Three totally unconnected pesukim, right? Like you're telling me really that <coughs> the story of the leaven, bread, and shmos is connected to that business with searching for the goblet, with the with the silver goblet. Like, what does that really have to do with searching for chametz on Pesach? Like, it would seem completely random. And then you're going to say, oh well says the word Vayichapes in Genesis, which is kind of connected to Exodus. So therefore, Vayichapes, which is in Mishlei, means candle. Now let's actually get to that verse in Mishlei. Does it really mean candle? 
can, can you prove from Mishle that whenever it says by Yechapes, it always means candle? Listen to what the verse says. Ner Hashem nishmat adam chofes Let's actually try to translate it now. Ner Hashem, the candle of God, nishmat adam is the soul of man. Chofes kol It searches all the insides of one's stomach. What does that Pasuk mean? Can you put that Pasuk in your own words? One more time. Ner Hashem, the candle of God, Nishmat Adam, is the soul of man, Chofes Kol It searches out all the insides of one's stomach. What does that Pasuk mean? In your own words. You want to take a stab at that? It's poetry. What do you think it means? <coughs> you know what it means. Strange Pasuk. What does it mean? What? Say it louder, it's hard to hear. Okay, so God knows what's going on with us, even if we don't know God. How would He know? By ver- just according to the verse, how does he know? What? He resides within us. Who resides within us? God resides within us? Does the verse imply that God resides within us? What resides within us? Our soul resides within us. So again, what does the Pasuk mean? Ner Hashem, a candle of God, Nishmat Adam, is the soul of man. Chofes kol chadre it searches all the insides of one's stomach. What does this pasuk mean? It means the, the mechanism that searches within you, that is the, which is your soul, is the candle of God. Yes. So it says, what is it that searches inside you, presumably for sin, right? That mechanism, that thing which searches, is your soul. And your soul can be conceptualized as God's candle, Right? So, what does that mean? Does it mean like there's spyware, right? That, that like we're all made with spyware from God, like inside ourselves. Like when you buy a new computer, especially if it's like IBM compatible, what's the first thing you do? Get rid of all the spyware. Do you know what I mean? You just get rid of all the, the bloated programs. So like are we saying that God programs man with something that is like this direct line to God that searches him. What do we mean when we say, Ner Hashem, Nishmat Adam, Chafes that the soul of God, soul, soul of man is the candle of God, <coughs> searches out all the insides of your heart. How would you describe that in plain English? What is this thing that searches for sin? Right? How does your soul do that? Why is it a candle of God? What does that mean? What do you think it means? Anybody? Your soul illuminates things hidden within us. How? Your guilty conscience. With your guilty conscience. Where do you feel it when you have a guilty conscience? Physically. If you feel guilty, where do you feel it? You feel the pit in your stomach. You literally feel it in your stomach. So... 
initially commenting on that, said, when you feel that pit in your stomach, right, how should you relate to that pit in your stomach? <coughs> One way to relate to it, the normal way to relate to guilt, and this gets back to this question I talked before, how do most of us instinctively relate to guilt, pangs of guilt that we literally feel in our stomach when we feel guilty about something? What's the first instinctive response? Rationalization, right? What's the rationalization intended to do? To make you feel better, to get away from that pain, right? So I'm going to do anything to sort of get rid of that pain. Maybe I'll rationalize what I did. Maybe I'll do something. But when someone asks you, what is that pain? Is that pain your friend? Or is that pain your foe? Our normal, natural response is, that pain is our foe. That pain needs to be gotten rid of. That is very uncomfortable. Let me do what I can to get rid of this. Comes the verse of Mishlei and says, you know what that pain is? Do you know why you have that pain? Where does that pain come from? It comes from your soul. From Ner Hashem. Ner Hashem Nishmatatam. It comes from the human soul. Which means that that pain actually comes from your deepest humanity. Your soul, which is your deepest humanity. And what is your soul? It came from God. So it's almost like your soul is this thing that doesn't sit very well with toxic, things that are toxic for it. So if you bring in something in your life that's toxic to your soul, you're going to hear about it from your soul, from your deepest humanity. Your deepest humanity is say, I feel uncomfortable. So in effect, that soul is, is it like a candle that searches the insides of yourself to see, like, is there anything here that feels toxic? Right? That's the way to conceptualize conscience. Now that's a very interesting thing for Mishle to say. But it seems like a particularly bad source for the idea that Hummates needs to be conducted by candlelight. Because if you think about that whole verse in Mishle, is there ever an actual candle described in that verse? No, it's all metaphorical. It's talking about your soul, your soul is really like the candle of God. So do you really see from there that, can, that searches for Hummates have to be conducted by candlelight? Because Tipos always has to be with a candle, as it says. It seems like the strangest derivation. What are Chazal telling us? <coughs> so I want to suggest that at this point, you can either throw up your hands and say, let's move on to the next Gemara Pesachim, right? Or you can say, let's figure out what's actually going on here. What are Chazal trying to tell us about Padika's Chametz? They saw something that makes them want to connect the story of the search for leaven or the, not even the story, with finding leaven in your house, they want to connect that, excuse me, sort like Matzik, not finding leaven in your house, they want to connect that with <coughs> this strange story of the W. Why? At face value, the story of the Gabiyah, even though it involves a search, has nothing to do with a search for comments. Right? Why do the sages feel these things are connected? So what I want to do with you now is to actually back up and actually take a look at the verse in Bresha that Chazal are asking us to look at and to look at its wider context and see if they, we can figure out what Chazal were driving at. So if you can, open up a Chumash to the story of, framing, of Yosef framing Binyamin.
please. Where are we going to research Heracles? We're going to start from. Um, where's my. Let's see here. Perak Mem Givel Pazak, let's say, Chafhe. Okay, um, before we actually begin looking at the subject, let me just ask you a quick question. <coughs> um, There's a very strange loose end in the story of Yosef and his brothers that never gets tied up. I want to explore the loose end with you. Here's a way you can think about it. Let's recreate the scene. Yehuda and the brothers are leaving Yosef in Egypt. They finally have their sacks full of food. They're on their way home. They finally have Shimon with them. And they, together with Binyamin, are all headed home. And it looks like the trip has ended successfully. All of a sudden, they see, they see the red police lights in the rearview mirror. And they're pulled over by Yosef's henchmen, who say, it seems that there's a missing goblet in the master's household. We think one of you may have taken it. Now you're Yehuda. Put yourself in Yehuda's shoes. At this point, Yehuda thinks that the last thing that would have happened is anyone who stole this goblet. So Yehuda actually makes an offer that he's about to regret a great deal. Yehuda says, <coughs> none of us have it. If you find this goblet in any of our sacks, the thief should die and all of us should be slaves. Now that puts him in a very bad position because he had promised his father that come what may, he was going to bring Benjamin home safely to him. And then, when the henchmen go and they search through all the sacks, and they in fact find the silver goblet in Benjamin's sack, that's like a very difficult position to be in if you are Yehuda. <coughs> what would you do if you were Yehuda? Do you believe at the moment where Binyamin is caught red-handed with the silver goblet in a sack, if you're Yehuda, do you believe that Binyamin is guilty or do you believe that Binyamin is innocent? Or are you not sure? Let's take a poll here. Each one of you has to play Yehuda. You all have to vote. How many of you believe, just on the basis of the evidence, what you've seen, that Binyamin is guilty, how many of you believe he's innocent, and how many of you think you don't know? Let's start with, how many of you think he's guilty? Raise your hand. He's caught red-handed. Two of you think he's guilty. How many of you think he's for sure innocent? Okay, more of you, about eight of you. How many of you aren't sure whether he's innocent or guilty? Okay, so most of you are sort of not sure, 
with Innocent coming up second, <coughs> and a little bit of Guilty. All right. Let me ask you something. If you thought all you big talkers would think that Benyamin's innocent, if you think Benyamin's innocent, don't you think that you would have made the wrong move? Because Yuda goes back and basically says, confesses their guilt and says, look, you know, we're sorry, but you found our guilt. Um, do me a favor, just please take me as a slave instead of Benyamin. If you really think he's innocent, why don't you argue for his innocence? If you're so sure. Why doesn't he allow Benyamin to die? He can't allow Benyamin to die. So remember, but put yourself in put yourself in Yehuda's shoes. In Yehuda's shoes, you have to bring this kid home. You promised your father. You said, if I don't bring him home, I will have sinned against you all the days of my life. I never in a million years thought it was going to be Benyamin, but now that it's Benyamin, I'll do anything to make it happen. Now, if I think he's guilty, that's one thing. But if I think he's innocent, <coughs> why don't I stand up and say anything? Now, let me actually... There's no way to prove it. There's no way to prove it. So you might say, I am in a very weak position. I might think he's innocent, right? But I can't prove you it. Know I might know he's innocent because how? Because I know his character, know he'd never do it. But I can't prove it. And because I can't prove it, he was caught red-handed. I'm guests in another nation. I'm a foreigner in a strange nation. He's got all the power. I can't make a case. I better <coughs> cut a deal, right? That's what you would say. Here's the problem. He can prove he's innocent because there's a little detail in the story that never gets talked about that is like this open-ended mystery. And here's the detail. <coughs> Take a look at the first Pasuk in Perak Memdalat Pasukal. Look what it says. Vayitzab es asher al-beto lemor and Yosef commanded his steward, saying, Malay et amtachot hanashim ochel. Fill <coughs> all the men's sacks with food, kasher yuchlun seit, as much as they can possibly carry. Vesim kesef ish befi amtachto. And put each man's silver, put each man's money back in their sacks. Remember, they had paid money for food, <coughs> right? Put the money back in their sacks. That gvi gvia hakesef tasim b'fiyam tachadukatan, and put my silver cup in the youngest person's sack. Now, what is strange about Yosef's behavior? If he was just out there to frame Benjamin, what should he have done? Just put the silver goblet in Benjamin's sack. Instead, what else has he done? He's putting all of their money back in each person's sack. Now, if you remember the story, this isn't the first time that happened. Because they had already gone to Mitzrayim once and paid for food. And guess what happened the first time they paid for food? Yosef had done the same thing. He had put every person's money back in their sack. And they discovered it. It says they discovered it. It says, Hey, Marie Kim Sakam. They were emptying their sacks. 
and they saw each Shorakaspo. They saw each person's money belt right there, even though they had paid, and they became scared. And they say, what has God done to us? There's a supernatural thing happening. So this had <coughs> now happened two times to 11 people. Okay? Now, you're the lawyer for Yehuda. Binyamin is found red-handed with the silver goblet. If you wanted to argue for Binyamin's innocence, how could you prove his innocence? What's that? Maybe so. But you could still, if you're going to make a case, if you're going to actually throw everything at the wall and make a case to Yosef, couldn't you make a case for Binyamin's innocence? Couldn't the case go like this? Sire, if this man is guilty, you have solved only one twenty-second of the problems around here because there are greater mysteries than the silver goblet at the bottom of his set. Why is there silver in everyone's set? For the second time. That makes them look even worse. It sounds like, right, we paid the first time and then the silver ended up in our sacks. And we paid the second time and the silver ended up in our sacks. All of our sacks, including his. So, one possibility is Binyamin was caught red-handed. But now you still have to explain what the silver is doing in everyone's sack. The other possibility is something's funny happening with silver around here. Right? There's something going on with the silver in everyone's sack. Everyone's sacks. Let's figure that out. Someone's putting silver back in people's sacks. Because this argument... So there's two mysteries here. Mystery number one is a mystery about Yehuda. Why doesn't Yehuda make this argument? It seems like ironclad proof for the innocence of Binyamin. But instead, he ignores the argument, and he comes clean, and he says... Sorry, we're guilty. Take me instead. So one question is about Yehuda's behavior. <coughs> the next question is about Yosef's behavior. Why would Yosef do this? If Yosef wanted to successfully frame Binyamin, all he had to do was put the silver goblet in Binyamin's sack, and that's it. He should not have put the silver in everyone's sacks. That weakens his case. Why would he have done that? Okay? Why would he have done that? So I want to attack the question about Yosef's behavior first and Yehuda's behavior second. Right? You understand the question about Yosef's behavior? If you're trying to frame Binyamin, this is a bad way to do it. You understand? The simple way to do it is you put your goblet in Binyamin's sack and that's it. That makes him look guilty. Putting silver in everyone's sack means something fishy is going on. Why are you doing that? <coughs> okay. So we need to come up with a theory about why he's doing it. It seems like in the Yosef story, Yosef, no matter what, when the brothers come to pay for food, he's never going to take it. He's always going to take that money and just not accept it and put it back where it came from. Let's try and entertain some theories about why. Why would he do that? It seems to me that there's a light reason, a nice reason why he might do that, and a dark reason why he might do that. Let's start with the light reason. What's the nice reason why he just won't take money from them. And he always puts the money back in their sacks. What? His brothers need it as a gift. They're his brothers. They're starving. A brother doesn't take money from another brother for food. Right? I'm not going to take the money. So no matter what, as a matter of principle, I can't take money from you. Even though I'm a friend, Binyamin, 
I'm still not going to take money from you, right? That's one possibility, a very reasonable possibility. That's the nice way of seeing it. Let's look a little bit darker. What's the darker reason why perhaps Yosef might not be willing to take their money? What? Well, that wouldn't have to do with his... <coughs> yeah, but that doesn't have to do with putting the money back in their sacks. That might have to do with why he's orchestrating the whole thing. Maybe. It's a fake. Yeah. <coughs> Louder, it's hard to use. Ah, because in Hebrew it wasn't just money, was it? What's the word for it in Hebrew? Sim kesef ish b'fiam It was silver. Where have we met silver earlier in the Yosef story? What did they sell him for? Silver. Now do you see why he might not want to take the silver? Why does he want to take the silver? Blood diamonds. It's blood diamonds. It's blood money. I'm going to take your silver? How do you have so much silver? Where'd you get your 20 pieces of silver from? I know where you got it from. By selling me. You think that's legitimate? And now, the money you took for selling me, you're going to pay me in silver? I don't want any of your darn silver. I don't need your silver. You keep your silver. That silver represents me. Silver that you have is illegitimate. Ill-gotten gains. It is me. <coughs> it was <coughs> given in exchange for me. When I see silver, I see Yosef exchange money. The worth of Yosef. That's what I see. I'm not taking that. You can keep yourself. And that is so important for him, perhaps. Either one of these things, either the nice reason or the bad reason, is so important to him, he's actually willing to risk overturning his whole framing Binyamin scheme by giving Yehuda a way out because he is just not taking money from them. He is not taking silver from them. So which is true? The light reason or the dark reason? The light reason might be true, but I want to argue to you today that the dark reason is certainly true. And I want to prove it to you. I want to prove it to you from the text. Let's go back in the text and see the evidence that suggests that the dark reason is true. So let's go back to Parakmem Gimel, Pazachafei. To set the scene, the brothers have just arrived back for the second time. Yehuda has just promised his father that come what may, he's going to bring back, um, come what may, he's going to, <coughs> um, come what may, he's going to bring back Binyamin to, um, <coughs> to him safely. Now, Here's the thing. So they arrived, and, and well, on their way back, it turns out that they brought a gift for Yosef, a mincha, a gift. They thought they were about, about to eat dinner with him, and they wanted to bring this gift to him. Now here's the thing. Why was the gift so important? Why do we hear about this gift? Why is this gift important in the story? <coughs> Does anyone know 
what was in the gift? Right? What was in the gift? You can see it a little bit earlier in chapter 43. Look at chapter 43, Perak Mem Gimel, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Read through the language of the gift and tell me why what they were giving was significant in a way that maybe they could not quite have understood. Let's read the verse. Yaakov says, Make sure to bring him a gift with Bring Ma'at Sri, Ma'at Ne'cha'ot, Three out of those four items are very significant. Listen carefully. Sri, Ne'cha'ot, Valot. That was the gift. Where else have we heard about these same three fragrant spices? Ne'cha'ot, Sri, Valot. Anybody? In the Yosef story, where else have we heard about these same three spices? Yes. That's right. <coughs> the merchants, the Ishmaelite traders, who came and took Yosef down to Mitzrayim from Canaan, they were carrying cargo. And the Torah tells you what the cargo was. They were nosim nechaot sri balot. These same three things. These were the fragrant incense spices that the traders had when Yosef was being taken down to Egypt. Put yourself in Yosef's shoes. Why do you think this gift is exactly the wrong gift to give Yosef right now? You're Yosef, you open up the present. My, a present just for me? You take one smell and what happens? What does smell like that do for you? It brings you back. It brings you back. Have you ever had, like, of all of our senses, what's the sense that can literally transport you back in time? Right? Smell. Right? That distinctive smell from 13 and a half years ago. Right? That journey down from the pit to Mitzrayim. And the brothers should offer me that smell that transports me back to that moment. Right? It's the last, it's the worst possible gift they could have given him at that time. Let's look and see what happens immediately after Yosef receives that gift. Let's keep on reading. <coughs> so they bring the mincha, and now Pazakhov Zion says, <coughs> So the first thing that happened is that they were going to eat together. So Yosef began with some cordial small talk, and he asked them all how they were doing. And they said, we're doing fine. And then Yosef said, really, how's dad doing? And they asked about dad, are you still alive? And they told him about dad, shalom lavadech alavinu, right? And that's how it began. Why do we have to hear about the small talk? Why do we have to hear that Yosef asked them how they were doing? What does asking how you were doing remind you of earlier in the Yosef story? Does anyone know why Yosef was sent by his father to check on his brothers? To see how they were doing. The language is exactly the same. Yaakov says, I want to check on Shlomo Achacha, the Shlomo See how they're doing. 
Well, it occurs to Yosef as he takes a whiff of their present that he never got a chance to fulfill his mission. He was jumped and kidnapped before he even got a chance to ask them how they were doing. No better time to ask them how they're doing than now, 13 and a half years later. So he asked them how they're doing. Might as well fulfill the mission, right? We're back to 13 and a half years ago. Let's do it right. So he asked them how they're doing, gets that out of the way. The next thing that happens is he sees Binyamin. Pasuk Chavtes. He lifts up his eyes and sees, and behold, we have Binyamin. Stop. Where else in the story of Yosef does someone lift, their up, lift up their eyes and see something? Who lifts up their eyes and sees? That's right. It's the brothers. They're eating lunch after throwing Yosef in the pit, right? They sat down to break bread and eat lunch, and at the meal, they lift up their eyes, and what do they see? Those Ishmaelite traders carrying the fragrant spices. So, now Yosef lifts up his eyes and sees Binyamin. And when he does, he says, oh, so is that your younger brother? And Yosef feels really badly. <coughs> and he almost reveals himself. He wanted to cry, but he doesn't quite reveal himself. What is that word for wanting to cry, quelching of tears? His, his, his rachim almost overcame him. What does nichmaru remind you of? It seems like an anagram for another word. Nun, chaf, mem, resh, vav. An anagram of? Nimkaru, which was exactly what they said when they were standing there at eating lunch. L'chu v'nimkarenu la'yishmeilim. Let's sell them to the Ishmaelim. So Yosef seems to be remembering, right? It's like deja vu all over again when you've got these, <coughs> these smells, right? And that point, he washes his face. He says, no, let bread be placed. Put down the bread for the meal. We're going to break bread together. What does breaking bread together remind you of earlier in the Yosef story? That's what the brothers did right after they threw him in the pit, right before the Ishmaelite traders came. They sat down to break bread. It's like the same events are happening. It's like this deja vu all over again, complete with the breaking of bread. <coughs> Listen to how they break the bread. Very strange. Yosef, rather than having a nice big table, he sets up this strange setup. The Mitzrim are over there. The brothers are over there. And Yosef's over here. And everyone's eating in these three little groups. Such that Yosef has to like throw this food to everybody, right? So, right? It's very strange. But what does that setup remind you of? The Bitzim over there, the brothers over there, Yosef over there, and eating bread. Think about the setup the last time they ate bread, 13 and a half years ago. 
Where was the brothers? They were over there. Where was Yosef? Over here in the pit. And where was Mitzrayim? Over there. That was the journey to Mitzrayim. It was like the same triangle. Yosef's setting it up. <coughs> like a triangle almost to mimic. And then there's cargo. Remember, there was this cargo of stuff that the Ishmaelite traders were carrying. They were going all the way down to Mitzrayim. Now there's going to be cargo too. You know what the cargo is going to be? The food. Right? The cargo is going to be... Uh, look at Pasuk Lama Dalet. Vayisa Masa'ot Very strange words. Vayisa Masa'ot. The Mepharshim translated, Rashi translates it to mean, and Yosef gave portions of bread to everyone. But that's a strange way to say gave portions of bread. Portions of bread are manot. What are Vayisa Masa'ot? Vayisa Masa'ot is literally, what's a masa? A masa is a, is, is a cargo pack, right? Now, <coughs> when did we hear about cargo packs before? That's what the Ishmaelite traders had. They were no sin the folks we alone. They had this cargo they were taking off Egypt. So the same language for cargo is being adopted by Yosef for this bread that he's giving to the brothers. He's like recreating the whole scene. And then, Vayishtu Vayishkuru Ima. He drinks with the brothers and he gets a little tipsy with them. Interesting that the Torah would have to tell you that, that he got a little drunk. It's kind of interesting, because if he got a little drunk, that means that what happens next probably happens when he's a little drunk. Well, what happened next? Look at the very next Pasuk, after it says, Vayishtu Vayishkuru Imo, Reshid Mem Dalet Pasuk Aleph. This is the moment that he commands his steward to frame Benjamin. He's drunk. When he does that, why? Because, like, in his right mind, he would never do that. He like does, He's not quite in his right mind. He's dr- why is he doing that? It's like he purposely got himself drunk so that he could do something that he would never do if he was sober. Like that's what teenagers, right? You know what I mean? Like sometimes, right? You get drunk because you want to do something that you wouldn't do if you weren't drunk. You know what I mean? That's why you get drunk. So that's Yosef. It's like Yosef is planning on getting drunk. Because otherwise he can never do this terrible thing that he's actually contemplating framing his beloved younger brother, Binyamin. So he gets himself drunk and tells the steward (coughs) to fill up these sacks with food and to put the silver at the bottom of the sacks. (coughs) Now here's the interesting thing. So far, everything he's doing is recreating the events of 13 and a half years ago. Is putting the silver in the sacks part of that recreation? Think about what a sack looks like, boys and girls. Draw a sack for me in here. It looks kind of like this, right? What else looks kind of like this in the Yosef story? The pit! And what's at the bottom of the pit? Yosef. And now, what's at the bottom of these pits? What's he putting in the sacks? The silver that represents him. him. Do you understand what he's doing? He's recreating Yosef's silver (coughs) at the bottom of the pit. How do you know it's true? What do we know about that pit? When Yosef is thrown in the pit, what does the Torah tell us about the pit? Habor reit. What's the word for empty in Hebrew? Reit. Habor reit einbo mayim. Guess what? The first time Yosef put silver in everyone's sacks, not now, earlier, 
the first time around he did it. The first time they came. And when the brothers discovered it, you know when they discovered it? They discovered it that night at the hotel, right? <coughs> and then, I'm sorry, they come home to dad, and when and then it, the text is, Hema Marikim Sakeha. They were emptying their sacks. Marikim is the word rape. And as their sacks were empty, they saw the silver in the bottom of the sack, and it freaked them out. You know why it freaked them out? You don't get freaked Like, if you went to the Makola, if you went to Kofix, right over here, and you got yourself a bagel toast, and the bagel toast cost 45 shekel, right? And, uh, or 55 shekel. And you realize, as you come home to Yeshiva Takoto from Kofix, that you accidentally only paid 50 shekel for the toast, and you didn't pay the other five shekel, right? Now, <coughs> what would happen? A, you would either say, oh, well, I guess I got five shekel, or B, you would go back and you would pay him, but you wouldn't say, oh my God, what has the Almighty done to me that I had this extra five shekel in my possession? That would be like OCD, right? You just wouldn't do that. That would not be the thing you would do. But that's what the brothers do. They get completely freaked out when they see this money in their sacks. What has the Lord done to us? You know why they're freaked out? Because subconsciously, what have they just seen? An empty sack with Yosef's silver inside. And what is it reminding them of? It's reminding them of what they've just done. Right? <coughs> and now Yosef seems to be engineering in a second time. Sacks with silver at the bottom of them. Right? The same scene. <coughs> but the thing is, there's something extremely clever about what Yosef's doing. Because this time... The sacks aren't empty. He's filling the sacks as much as they can possibly be filled with stuff. What stuff? Now this is the key. What stuff is he filling the sacks with? Let's look at the verse. Dem dalat pasagalat. What did he put in the sacks? Malay et amtachot anashim ochel kasher yuchlim seit. What is ochel? Guys, what's ochel? Food. Food. Now, remember this happened in an earlier time also. The first time around, he also filled their sacks. What did he fill their sacks in the first time? You look carefully at the text, he filled it with bar, with tevin. He filled it with, with grain. Now, grain is not ocha. Grain is not food that's ready-made to eat food. Grain is long-term food. That's what he filled it around the first time. But this time, he didn't give them long-term food. He gave them ochel, ready to eat food. And, by the way, he gave them ochel immediately after <coughs> this grand meal that he made for them. A meal which, by the way, Binyamin got five times as much as everyone else. Now, <coughs> what was the main course at the meal? We know what the main course of the meal was. Bread, simu lechem, let bread be at the meal. So, add it up all together. The bread was called masa'ot, these portions, these cargo portions. And when he tells his steward to fill up the sacks, <coughs> he says, <coughs> There's that word se'et, the same word for cargo. Sounds like the same cargo was at the meal, which was the bread, the food. You know what he's doing now? There were doggy bags in the meal, there was extra food. So, he's filling up all their sacks with seda ladera, food for the road, all the doggy bags left over from the meal, all the bread left over from the meal. He's filling their sacks with bread. 
bread inside sacks. What does that remind you of earlier in the story? Now, where else was there bread? Bread at the meal 13 and a half years ago. But now, it turns out that there's one more pig. <coughs> so first of all, before we even get to this, you can begin to see where the Gemarian suffering is starting to get, you begin to see the pieces coming together. We ask, how could the Gemarian suffering possibly think that a search for hummings has to do with the Yosef story? Well, one second, we now know that there actually was a search, right? There was all this bread in people's sacks, and when they searched those sacks, what did they have to do with all that bread? They had to get rid of all that bread so they could see the silver at the bottom of the sacks. There was a search for all of this bread that you wanted to get rid of, just like the search for Chameitz on Pesach, where you search for bread, for all you want to get rid of. So you can begin to see where Chazal are coming from. But let's take a little bit further. <coughs> Why is Yosef insisting on doing this, on putting all this bread into people's sacks? The answer is, there was one more thing that looked like this, that was full of bread. All those 13 and a half years ago. Tell me something. Why did the Torah have to go out of its way to let you know the little detail that after the brothers threw Yosef in the pit, the next thing they did was by They sat down and spread a picnic table to eat lunch. Why did the Torah tell you about that little detail? It seems so superfluous. Why say it? What's the Torah telling you by saying, and they sat down to break bread? They spread the picnic table with a picnic blanket 200 yards away. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? <coughs> Why did they eat lunch? Why did they have a picnic? What? Matter? They're very nonchalant. That's pretty nonchalant about some of brothers, right? It's like, hey, is anyone at the picnic blanket? Yeah, time to eat lunch. Let's, have, let's break out the bread, guys. That's very nonchalant after selling your brothers. Now let me ask you something. If you just sold your brother into slavery, how nonchalant would you be? Not so nonchalant. So you think the brothers were out of their mind? Why did they spread the table and bake bread? It sure looks nonchalant. So why are they doing it? To make themselves feel nonchalant. They don't feel nonchalant at all. As a matter of fact, how do they actually feel? Guilty. What do they feel inside their stomach? That pain. What's the first thing you do when you feel that pain? Pains of guilt in your stomach. What do you do? You do whatever you can to make the pain go away. What's one of the things you can do to make the pain go away? Open up the fridge. Open up the fridge. Binge. <coughs> Guys, let's sit down and eat. By sitting down and eating, you kill two birds at one stone, you act nonchalant. <coughs> if we're all having a picnic, how bad could the thing we just did be if we're all just eating, right? And that's one way I can rationalize what I did. And that's one way I try to make the pain go away. The next way I try to make the pain go away is literally by stuffing my stomach. Because the pain is in my stomach. So I eat, and I eat, and I eat, and I throw all this bread down my stomach. 
Yosef realizes that at the pit, there were two pits. One pit was a pit that he was in at the bottom of. The second pit was the pit in everybody's stomach that was being filled with bread so that they wouldn't realize that there was a Yosef at the bottom of the other pit. And now, Yosef is taking those two pits from 13 and a half years ago and bringing them together in the brother's sex. There's Yosef at the bottom of the pit, but you can't even realize that there's the silver at the bottom of the pit because it's all full of bread. The only way you'd ever realize it is by getting rid of the bread. And that's what he does in the search. You know why that's what he does in the search? Because when the brothers came to their father and reported about Yosef's whereabouts, what did they say? They didn't own up to what actually happened with Yosef. They put blood in his coat. And what did they say? Zot Matsanu. By the way, there's that word matza again. This we found. Now, <coughs> there was an insidious lie about saying that. Because by saying Zot Matsanu, this is what we found, what are you implying? We have nothing to do with it. What else are you implying? Dad, don't want to I don't know, this is what we found. Right? It sounds like if your brother went missing, what would you do? You look for him. So by saying, Dad, this is what we found, what are you implying? We look for him, and this is all we can find. To find. But what's the truth? There never was any search. It was a fake search. There was the implication of a search. This we found. But there was never any search. So you know what? When Yosef redoes it 13 and a half years later, what do you make sure there's going to be? No search. A search. By golly, this time we're going to have a search. We're going to start with the others. Go through all of that. We're going to search until we find the Yosef. The missing search that never happened. Right? We're going to go search through it until we actually find it. This, Chazal seemed to understand, was the original search for Hametz. <coughs> Hametz, an interesting kind of thing. Let's go back to that point about Yosef getting drunk. Why do you think Yosef got drunk before he framed Binyamin? Because never in his right mind, if he was sober, would he have done such a thing. You can't actually do that. To pin the blame on your youngest brother and literally to frame him, you wouldn't do it if you were sober. There is some connection between Yosef drinking to frame Binyamin an event that happens 13 and a half years ago. The brothers, after they put Binyamin, also do something that they would never do in their right mind. They put their brother in a pit. And how do they deal with it afterwards? They eat bread. What's the common denominator between the bread that they eat and the beer that Joseph drinks to get drunk? What? Beer is made from grain and bread Beer is made from grain. What kind of grain? How do you make beer? Yes. What do you have to do to it? What's the common denominator between the bread and the beer? Hummets. Fermentation. There's something about the process of fermentation that you can use to, to assuage your guilt, to change your mind. The same alcohol that's in beer, by the way, is in bread. That's the way fermentation works. The yeast comes and eats the sugars. It's alcohol, right? That, that, that's the way it is. Look at the science of fermentation. There's something about hummings, right, that has the ability to distract you. Whether 
distract you from something you're about to do or distract you that something that you were done that you can't live with. Hazal seemed to have seen all of this. And the last thing they tell us is something fascinating. <coughs> they say, you know why you have to search for hummings by candlelight? Because whenever there's a search, it's got to be done by candlelight. Because ne'er Hashem nishmat adam so Facebook hundred. They're talking to you about the nature of conscience. The soul of man is the candle of God. It searches out all the insides of your stomach. But if the soul of man is the candle of God, and it works by searching out the way a candle would in your stomach, what's a way that you could thwart the candle? How could you make the candle not find the thing in your stomach that it's looking for? Something in the way. If there's something in the way, what if you stuffed your stomach with bread? Right? If you could do that, right? Because you can inure yourself to the pains of conscience, you can distract yourself. So in order to allow your conscience to do its work, you actually have to undistract yourself. You have to allow yourself, allow your soul to be uncomfortable, <coughs> to feel that pain. That's what Chazal is saying. That's what Yosef did when he was trying to get rid of all this bread. It seems to me, and I want to close with this thought, that this too is something that Chazal understood from the Yosef story. This idea of the Pasuk of Mishle, this way that the soul works to, to um, <coughs> the way that the soul works as the Pasuk Mishle describes it, is something you see in the Yosef story. And let me be clear. What the Pasuk Mishle is saying, in a way, is that we all need to radically reorient ourselves when it comes to how we relate to guilt, or how we relate to pangs of conscience, <coughs> to that little voice inside of us. What the Pasuk Mishle is saying is, what our job is, is to make friends with the little voice inside of you. The natural instinct is, when there's that little voice inside of you that is saying, I don't like this, there's something I don't like this, I'm feeling really uncomfortable, our first instinct is to quiet that voice somehow, either by rationalization or by stuffing ourselves or by getting drunk or by distracting ourselves in some kind of way. And, what, and the reason why we distract ourselves is because the voice is not convenient. The voice seems like our enemy. And what Chazal is saying is, you have to reorient the way you look at the voice. That voice is not a pesky mother nagging you. That voice is not your 11th grade Rebbe that you can never stand, who's telling you to, to grow up and do something else. That voice is not all of those terrible things in your life that always externally made you feel guilty. That's not the voice. The voice that's making you uncomfortable is your soul. It's the deepest part of who you are. It's you that's making you uncomfortable. That soul, that part of your soul, the reason why it's uncomfortable is because that special part of who you are is on loan from God. And because it's on loan from God, it doesn't like being around stuff that's toxic for it. So you should view that as a gift because in effect, that is an alarm that you can use to help yourself. Because when you're feeling that pain, it's your soul revolting against something inside of you. And that's you. That's your deepest humanity. It's the most godly part of you. So listen to it. 
the fact that it's still inside of you means something. The fact that you can feel the pain means that that little part of God that's inside of you is still there. It means that God cares enough about you that there's still a little piece of him inside of you that's there. You're still lovable. You're still good enough for God, right? Even with that toxic thing. So deal with it. It's your friend. Make friends with the voice. It's the deepest part of you. <coughs> Chazal saw that, I believe, in the Pesukim right over here. We've talked until now about Yosef. Why it was that Yosef put the silver into everyone's cup. We now have an understanding of why Yosef put all that silver in everyone's bags, even though it worked against his plot to, to frame Benjamin. But now we need to come back to the question of Yehuda. Why didn't Yehuda use this as evidence? If there was silver in everyone's sack, he had clear evidence that Benjamin was innocent. He could have made the case, but he doesn't. Chazal saw in Yehuda's actions, not, not making the case, something remarkable. Let's look at Yehuda not making the case. Fast forward for me to the end of Miketz. Perak Mem Dalet. Pasuk Here's what Yehuda actually says. Vayomer Yehuda. Ma no What can I possibly say to protest my innocence? Ma nenaber. What can I say? I'm speechless. Ma nitzadat. How can I possibly <coughs> hold myself out to be excited? Hayalokin matza atavon avdat. The Lord has found the sin of your servants. We are all your servants. Let us all be your servants. <coughs> Let me ask you something. If you would have really meant to admit that they were guilty, he should have said it differently than this. Listen carefully to how he says it. Elohim matzat avonadecha, he says. The Lord has found our sin. He shouldn't say the Lord has found our sin. Who found their sin? You guys, you caught us red-handed. He should say, you found our sin. We were caught red-handed. How come he says the Lord found our sin? Because he's not saying he's guilty for stealing the What's that? He's not saying they're guilty for stealing the Exactly. The question is, which sin is he talking about? It's unclear. He probably wants the high Egyptian official to think that he's admitting guilt to Binyamin's sin. But he may not actually be admitting guilt to that sin. He may be talking about a different sin. What is he seeing? He's seeing the silver at the bottom of the sacks. At that moment, right... It, 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 it's all coming, it's all, it's 13 and a half years ago, it's all in front of his face again. He's saying, yes, look, we're caught, we're guilty. We're not guilty for this, we're guilty for that. The silver that he sees at the bottom of the sacks reminds him of the guilt for selling Yosef with silver. Okay. <clears throat> but now let's be very clear about what Yosef is saying. He's saying something very subtle and very powerful. Listen carefully to what he's saying. What if I wanted to splash cold water on everything? And I'm going to play devil's advocate over here. And I say, one second for me. 
You're telling me that Yehuda was referring to the earlier crime of Mafir Yosef, and that's what he was confessing to when he says, It was the Lord who found your saints. Why? Because it's like so much hashtaha, right? Because look, there's the silver at the bottom of the sack, and God made it all happen because God found us to be really guilty. If I wanted to be cynical here, here's what I could say. Can you imagine Yehuda's surprise when the high Egyptian official is unmasked and he realizes that who was it? Yosef. And he realizes that who was it that planted the silver in the sack? Yosef. It wasn't God. It wasn't providence. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, look at the <laughs> silver at the bottom of the sack. Just like when 13 and a half years ago, it was the Lord saying, it wasn't the Lord saying anything. It was Yosef with malice aforethought, planning the whole thing, knowing exactly with what he was doing. So, like, maybe Yehuda was wrong. <coughs> Yehuda had this religious revival and thought it was God, only to discover, no, it was, it was, it was the little man behind the curtain pulling all the strings, right? Like in, in The Wizard of Oz, right? Does that deflate the whole story? Hazal are telling you that doesn't deflate the whole story. That wasn't exactly what Yehuda meant when he said, It didn't mean that, oh, it was Hashkacha, the Lord made it all happen. Listen to the Pasuk and Mishle that the rabbis quote. The rabbis say, you know what God is? God has his candles. Do you know what that candle is? It's your soul. It's you. Your soul is acting as God's candle. Your soul can't handle sin, so it's uncomfortable and that's the pain in your stomach you know where the rabbis got that from? they got it from Yehuda that is what Yehuda meant when Yehuda said Elohim matzat abonadecha, Yehuda wasn't talking about hashdacha, Yehuda wasn't talking about this strange bunch of miracles that God did, no when Yehuda saw the silver at the bottom of the sack how did he feel inside? he felt that same pain in conscience from 13 and a half years ago. All the bread was gone. There was only the silver. There was nothing to hide from. And he felt the pain. And feeling the pain, he said, you know what that pain is? You know why I feel that pain? I feel that pain because my soul feels it. And my soul comes from God. Elohim matzat abonadecha is that's my conscience. <coughs> when my conscience feels pain, that's God's candle. That means that God is alive within me. That's exactly what Yehuda meant to say. Now here's the really remarkable thing. With this all close. Once you take this approach to conscience, not only is it a spiritually expeditious way to live, it's also an extremely powerful way to live. If you're looking for power in life, how to win friends and influence people, how to actually make change in the world, how to actually make things happen in the world, how to become the most powerful person you can, you actually should look no further than Yehuda. Yehuda is the scion of kings, the scion of power. His actions in this story are a tale in what power and what leadership is actually made of. As a matter of fact, you can view the entire Yosef story as a story from Yehuda's perspective about the nature of leadership and the nature of power. And it all has to do with one thing. 
at its core, it has to do with what is your relationship to your conscience? How do you choose to relate to your conscience? That alone is the single question that will impact the amount of power you have in life. And you see it in Yehuda. <coughs> it's more complicated than this, but to simplify it, I'll take just three points in the story of Yosef and Yehuda, and you'll see it. Let's start with point number one. Yehuda's relationship with contents at the beginning of the story when he sells Yosef. What happens? <coughs> Remember, they had left Yosef in the pit to die, and then they spread their blanket to eat food. And while they did, he saw Yehuda did. They all saw the merchants from afar, the Ishmaelite traders. And Yehuda has an, has an idea. By Yomer Yehuda el <coughs> We don't have to kill him, he says. We can just sell him. And Yehuda saves his life. Now listen to what he says. If you listen carefully, is he making an appeal to conscience or not? Listen to his words. What do we gain by killing our brother and covering up his blood? What profit is there for us? We don't gain anything by doing that. Let's make a buck on this. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, right? Stop. So far, has he made an appeal to conscience? Not at all. He's going to do the right thing, not kill him, but... He hasn't appealed to conscience, he's appealed to profit motive, right? Hardly a wonderful motivation. But then, at the very end of what he says, he says something else. His last words are, after he says, And let our hand be upon him. Why? Because after all, he is our brother. That was an appeal to conscience. He said, guys, it's not right to kill him. He is our brother. But that appeal to conscience was flawed. It was flawed not just because it was paired with the profit motive. It was flawed because if you wanted to appeal to conscience, if the conscience is he is, after all, our brother, that argument should go further than just not killing him, right? If he is your brother, what else shouldn't you do? Sell him as a slave either. But he doesn't go that far. And now I ask you the question, why didn't he go that far? If he was already dealing with the right thing to do, and he knew it was wrong, because he is, after all, our brother, then why didn't he just say, guys, let's return him to dad? Why didn't he say, let's sell him? What's the answer to that question? He was looking for... Okay, so he's looking to assuage himself by at least speaking conscience a little bit. But still, why not take the argument all the way? Because if his brothers don't listen to him, he might lose the whole thing to begin with. He's worried about something. He's worried that if he goes that far... He's arguing with Shimon Levy. He's arguing with Shimon Levy. There's no way it's going to work. So, he says, look, I, I can't go that far. They're not going to listen to me. I can go this far. I'm negotiating. I can take conscience this far. Now, was he right or was he wrong? Here's the interesting thing. The puzzle after this is, by Yered Yehuda Medecha, Yehuda went down from amongst his brothers. Chazal comment on that puzzle. The brothers caused him to descend from his position of leadership over them. 
Why? Because they said, when you told us not to sell, not to kill him, only to sell him, Hayinu Shomimla, we were listening to you. As it says, Vayishmu Echa, you should have told us not to sell him either. We were listening. You had us. You missed, you underestimated your own power. Right? And he did. He didn't realize how much power he had. So he mixed it with profit motive. So he didn't go as far. But the brothers themselves said, we were listening to you. You had us. Why? It wasn't the prophet that appealed to us. It was the conscience that appealed to us. When you said those words, that struck us. We were listening. You should have gone farther. <coughs> That's the first moment. Yud has power, but he doesn't realize how much power he has. What's the second moment of Yud in context? Second moment, I'm skipping one, but in the interest of time. But the second moment <coughs> is when he goes to his brother, he goes to his father to convince him to be the caretaker for Binyamin. He says, let me take care of Binyamin. Why? Because if I don't bring him back, the fatati I will have sinned against you all the days of my life. I will feel this pain in my stomach that will never let me rest. Right? And trust me that I don't want to live with that pain. He was speaking about the possibility of what he would feel like, what his conscience would make him feel like if I don't come back from Benjamin. And that's the only thing his father listened to. His father turned down Reuven's appeal. Reuven said, I'll kill my two, bro- my two sons if I don't bring him back. That didn't mean anything to Yaakov. Only thing it meant to something to Yaakov was Yehuda saying, I won't be able to live with my conscience. That was his second moment of power. But even there, there was something short-circuiting his power. Because there's a secret that Yehuda has that he's not telling his father that undermines his whole argument that he would never be able to live with his conscience without bringing back Binyamin. What is he not telling his father? At the very moment that he's saying, trust me to bring back Binyamin, because my conscience would never let me live with it. He's living with the conscience of having sold Joseph. What is he not telling dad? That he's been living with the same problem because he's the one who sold Yosef. <coughs> that is a secret. Why does he tell dad that? He feels he can't. <coughs> it's so awful that he can't deal with it. And so he avoids it, right? Continuing to eat that bread, avoiding the truth. Unbeknownst to him, the only way he'll be able to make good on his promise to get Binyamin back is going to be to confront the other sin. Because when Yosef is the one who imprisons Binyamin, Yosef is not letting him go. What's the only thing that finally convinces Yosef to let Binyamin go? It's a combination of two things. It's a combination of two things. Yosef at the end says, How could I possibly go back to dad without my brother taking me instead? My conscience won't let me live with it. But he began his speech by telling Yosef something else too. The Lord has found my sin. My conscience makes me convinced that I am guilty for having sold you, for having sold Yosef. When you put those two things together, he isn't hiding anymore. He's telling the complete truth. And at that moment, imagine Yehuda's surprise 
when the high Egyptian official reveals himself to be Yosef, his long-lost brother. Never in a million years did he think that he has that much power. How did he have that much power? By finally confronting the truth, by finally making friends with the little voice inside of him, by finally saying, yes, I am guilty for that, and it's okay, and that's the little voice inside me, that's God inside me. And the part of me that said that I couldn't deal with that because I'd be ultimately unlovable if I could ever admit the truth, that's what I did to my brother, that was wrong. That little voice inside me was still there. God was still there. It's okay. I can make friends with that voice. When he can say that, his power is unimaginable. Yosef reveals himself in a puddle of tears, right? And Benjamin is home. And Yehuda becomes king. He becomes king because he knew and embraced the secret of that power. It's spiritually really debilitating for us to make friends with the little voice, but it also makes us into incredibly powerful people. Who are the people you respect? The people who never apologize, the people who always walk away, the people who can't deal with that little voice, or the people who can't. Those who can look what they've done wrong in the eye and can accept it and can see it as a function of their vital humanity, that they can feel that remorse and embrace that, those are the people you look up to. Those are the people you follow. Those are the people you're willing to follow with into the foxhole. Those are the powerful people in life. And I think that's what Kazal is telling us here in this first lecture of Sachem. I think it's something which is relevant not just to the first night of Pesach, but it's relevant to the culmination of the Yemea Din. The Yemea Din are not the days where you hear the 11th grade Rebbe in your ear that you can never stand, right? He's trying to make you feel guilty with the umpteen Muslim moves, right? It's when your deepest humanity rises, and, um, and, and if you can accept that, right, the power that you have is unimaginable. Thank you very much.